stuffworks.com. And I thought it was very interesting that these themes of cyber politics and cyber warfare have come to, ex- to escape the confines of policy and academic fields of inquiry, and they have entered the everyday to such a degree that they would feature along articles and blog posts on cars, on MP3 players, and on guides on how to find cheap airfares. So, we will discuss today those different themes, those different aspects of what we have come to call the field of cyber politics. And we will do so with the help of our, of our four speakers, who will give brief presentations on the, on the cyber issues that inform their own research. So, uh, I'll take a minute and present them in the order in which they will speak. Um, Madeline Carr joined the department last September, and her research zooms in on the challenges that the information age poses for existing international relations theory, whilst her current work tackles <coughs> the problems that face state cooperation in the context of cybersecurity. Blevin, Blevin Bowen, is one of our first year PhDs, and he's also doing very funky and very now research, working with new, uh, new technologies and focusing on strategic theory and its application to the fourth dimension of warfare, outer space. Chris Stoddard is a lecturer in the department as well, and he works on themes of the cyber dimension, and he's also the executive secretary of the Center for Intelligence and International Security, right? Studies. Studies, yeah, sure. (laughs) And his research lies in the field of intelligence, new technologies, and cybersecurity. And finally, our guest speaker, Peter Montello, uh, he comes to us from the Risk to Make an Asian Pacific University. Hope I got this right. Uh, and he identifies himself first and foremost as a serious gamer. His research draws on themes of war, digital and new media technologies, political violence, and virtuality. So um, I'll just hand over to Madeline, who is the first okay. one to enlighten us. This isn't a PowerPoint of the caliber of uh, Peter Mantello's anyway, but I do have some notes on here, so I did have some notes on here. And I haven't wrote my notes down anyway, so that's great. (laughs) We don't need that. No, it's just a text-based PowerPoint. It's only because it prompts me when I'm speaking, but I don't need it, so let's just um, just carry on. Okay, so what, well, first of all, I wanted to thank Ira and, and Blevin for organizing this. I thought it was such a cool idea um, to mark the anniversary of a, of a uh, journal article in that way, um, because this article by Arkila and Ronfeldt was a, a pretty important article at the time, and it continues to be, to inform debate. And so I thought what I could contribute tonight was just to, talk a little bit about um, these big debates that are taking place in IR over cyber war and just kind of sketch out for you how people are thinking about this and talking about this. And I'll I'll begin with um, this Arkila and Ron Felt um, journal article, Cyber War is Coming. Um, Now, uh, 
This was an article that, it, it was an article that they published in 1993, and they call it throughout a think piece. So they're saying it's not a research article, it's not based on, you know, on, on in-depth research or fieldwork or anything, it's a think piece. Um, from two guys who basically had been writing and researching about military and military strategy for a long time, and they were engaged with, you know, what was happening with, the, with regard to this new technology. Um, I, I want to put it in context because I think that's really important. 1993 predates the commercialization and the privatization of the Internet. So at the time they were writing, the, the Internet as it was, was only accessible to military personnel and to um, university researchers and to some government um, employees. It wasn't the internet that we know today. Um, and it wasn't privatized and commercialized until the mid-90s because there was this uh, um, idea in America that had, had been funded by taxpayer dollars and so you shouldn't commercial, it shouldn't be open for commercial use. This is something that the, that the taxpayers had paid for and people shouldn't be making money out of it. So they had to privatize it before they could open it up. So Arkila and Ronfeld are writing in this context, really thinking ahead um, to something that they had really no idea of how it would pan out. Um, and they're also writing in the context of the post-Cold War um, decline in American spending on, on military um, resources. So as, when the Cold War ended, there was this expectation in America that, okay, well, we're not fighting the Russians anymore, so we're going to divert all that huge amount of money that we used to put into the military, and we should be able to claw some of that back. It was referred to as the peace dividend, and that that money should be used for more interesting things now and not just... So, so Arkila and Ron Felt are saying, well, there's going to be less money for defense, you know, the things have changed strategically and in, in, in the kind of strategic climate of the world. And, um, and we're going to just sort of think about how this new technology might impact. And so a lot of their article is about the specific use that the military would make of this technology. Okay, and that, that's really the way they're thinking about it. So, so they have no real notion of what's to come in the following 20 years. Um, and nonetheless, they make some very interesting observations. One of the things they draw upon a lot of historical examples to talk about how important knowledge is in, in warfare and how you know, having an a, a, um, edge on knowing what's going on is quite often a decisive factor. And they talk about these examples of you know, the people that used to have mirrors looking over hills so that they could know what was going on, but the guys on the other side of the hill wouldn't know. And you know, this kind of... Um, and they draw out these things. They, talk, they, they give this Clausewitz quote at the beginning of the article that says, knowledge must become capacity, um, capability. So, so Clausewitz, who wrote this, you know, this, this historical text on war and is the kind of guy that we often go back to when we're talking about war studies, he said, knowledge must become capability. And, and so Arkila and Ron felt pick up on this and say, look, you know, even Clausewitz wrote about how important this is and it's going to be even more important now with this technology that's all geared towards knowledge. But they also talked about how this new network structure would I impact on organizations and, and doctrine. So they said that this notion of these hierarchical organizations, uh, like the military, the most hierarchical, arguably, it, it can't survive that way. It has, to, it has to mirror the technology and become networked. 
because other threats are becoming networked. Terrorist groups were becoming networked and no longer hierarchical with a you know, charismatic leader at the top and then you know, deputies and then a bunch of foot soldiers. The new terrorist threat was networked, and it was just these kind of nodes of people that if you took off one node, it didn't matter. The network would just rebuild itself and survive. And so he's arguing that the, that the U.S. military would have to respond that way organizationally as well. <clears throat> Maybe that was a little bit optimistic. But um, Now, this, this, this notion of theirs is very much a part of contemporary debates on cyber war by, that's put forward by people like Richard Clark, who was the cyber, uh, cyber advisor to President Bush. And, and he's written a book on cyber war. And... <clears throat> He, his, people like Richard Clark argue that, that cyber war is a very, very big deal. It's a big threat to, to the way states have, have interacted before, and, um, and we're really turning a blind eye to it. And there's a lot of people who take that position. In, in fact, just last Tuesday, James Clapper, who's the director of national intelligence in, in the United States, he, he said to a... Um, as there was a Senate Intelligence Committee set up to, to hear, um, you know, what the latest thinking was on worldwide threats. And, and James Clapper, who's the director of national intelligence, said he said that cy- a cyber attack was the number one threat facing America. He said that on Tuesday. Um, but curiously, and I haven't really had time to, di- to digest this yet, he also said um, the possibility of an attack like that in the next two years was remote. So I'm not quite sure how something so remote can be the number one threat. But I guess we'd have to ask James Clapper about his views on that. But this is not a new view. As far back as 2000, the head of the CIA, um, George Tennant, and the, the, um, a senior FBI official, um, Michael Vadas, testified at Senate hearings, at congressional hearings. And, and George Tennant, the head of the CIA, this was 13 years ago, he said that cybersecurity was the most complex issue that he had put on the table. So there's a long history of, um, you know, anxiety and, 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 uh, and trepidation about this threat um, politically. Um, now, there's another view, um, which is this kind of Thomas Ridd view. Um, Thomas Ridd is an is a, um, academic in the UK, and he's, he's written this article that says, um, what did he call it now? He said, cyber war, think again, right? Cyber war will not come. So in response to Archila and Ronfeld, cyber war will not come. And Thomas Ridd represents another big tranche of thinking about cyber war, which is a very skeptical approach. So he, Thomas Ridd would argue, A, he would say, he, say he, he says war is about physical violence. So he says, if, if you're talking about war without physical violence, you're talking about something else. Um, and he points out, and these, these people would point out, that cyber attacks haven't, you know, they don't cause a loss of life and they don't cause physical damage. And, and so Thomas Ridd says, if you want to ex- extract physical violence from the debate, then you're talking about a kind of um, metaphorical notion of war, like the war on drugs or the war on obesity or whatever. That's not really a war. That's just a phrase that we use. Um, and people who argue uh, alongside Thomas Reid, another thing that they often refer to 
They say, you know, these kind of things can happen naturally anyway. You can just have a power blackout. Someone cuts a line or, you know, some construction worker digs through a, um, a cable. That, that kind of thing can happen. Or you have a natural disaster um, like Hurricane Katrina, which we were just talking about in the session a moment ago. Um, so they say, you know, that kind of thing happens and, and states deal with that. So this notion of a, you know, cyber Armageddon or something is really fanciful. But, of course, we were just talking about this in the lecture. Hurricane Katrina is an interesting example because Hurricane Katrina is an, is, was an instance where there was a huge natural disaster. Thousands of people were killed and thousands, tens of thousands of people were trapped, um, you know, in those football stadiums and stuff. And it took days, a week or something, to get to them with water and food and medical supplies and to evacuate them. And that is... that. That instance of Hurricane Katrina is something that really resonates with politicians who worry about cybersecurity, especially in the United States, because they say, okay, supposing it did happen, however unlikely, how prepared are we? And the answer after Hurricane Katrina was, well, not very well, because if FEMA couldn't deal with a weather pattern that they saw coming a week ago, then what hope is there for us if something comes out of the blue? So... But people like Thomas Reed would say, okay, that it, it, it may happen, probably we can deal with it. And also, another argument that they often put forward is that our opponents aren't technologically capable. The, this new technology emerges from Western developed industrialized states. We're the ones that are building it and developing it. And it's very unlikely that, you know, some terrorists in some underdeveloped country or, or you know, a state that's still struggling to develop itself economically um, is going to have the capacity to launch an attack like that. So that's another that's seen as another defense against um, cyber war, or as another barrier against or protection against cyber war. And so these people argue, you know, it may introduce complexities, but the real sphere of state-to-state -state com conflict is in the real world. That is where it matters. It's aircraft carriers and tanks and soldiers and the real world where people are killed or, you know, and, and, and countries are forced to give way territory or, or, or give way their will. So those are the two kind of broad parameters of the, of the debate. Um, now, uh, one thing that's happened more recently, or a couple things that have happened more recently, is that some people are arguing that cyber war is already underway. That while we had this notion when the internet first began that these attacks on critical infrastructure, taking out the power supplies or you know, interrupting with the, the, the traffic flow and things like that, um, that's just how far our imagination could take us then. And while we've been waiting for that to happen, and it's never really happened, I mean, arguably in Estonia in 2007, but... But while we've been waiting for that, the game has already been underway. And it's been underway in a, in a number of ways, um, you know, through, through things like um, the economic drain of, of the cost of cybersecurity. And so the, the cost that, that we pour into cybersecurity and, and that corporations pour into, you know, recovering lost material or intellectual property that is stolen and repurposed that all of that economic drain is, you know, is kind of sucking the, the um, resources out of countries. And, of course, we need resources for this real world 
state of conflict as well. So, so that's one of the ways that people argue about it. And they also argue about things like interference of knowledge on the battlefield, how, how you know, you, you can, you know, hack it. If, if soldiers are very reliant on, on new technology in the field, and then that, that technology is vulnerable to attack as well, so you can change how people perceive the battleground and, and, and a whole bunch of ways that, that people argue that cyber war is already going on and we've kind of been missing it. Now, um, I just, I'm going to finish up um, pretty quickly, but I just want to make a point. What I think is interesting about this is that when people like RID insist on this very particular definition of war, I think that's a mistake. I think it misses the point. It's like saying, and I'm sorry, I can't think of any better analogy, but this one popped into my head today. It's like saying that, that uh, marriage is a union between a man and a woman. Now, a, a lot, like a while ago, that sort of made sense, and we, you know, and, and that was, well, there was no question about that. But, of course, now, as things move on, we say, well, you know, marriage is not just a man and a woman. You know, men can marry men, and, and women, can, carry women can marry women. And so marriage, we'd say, that definition of marriage, and this is a debate that's kind of going on, but, but you know, we would say, okay, that's not a gender-based thing. That's about a relationship. And I think you can think about war in the same way. Um, so a couple points I want to make, and this writing is really tiny now because it was supposed to be on a slide. Um, some of the problems with thinking about war in that very Thomas Reed way of violence, physical violence, is, is this idea of attribution in cyberspace. So because it's very difficult to, de- to tell who is behind an attack, or it can be very difficult, we don't know who's carrying out an attack, and we don't know why. So if, for example, they're, they're carrying out an attack for commercial gain, then we might say, well, that's a crime. If it's a group, an organized group carrying out an attack because they'd like to change something, um, we, we, we might refer to that as political, um, you know, political action, or we might even refer to it as terrorism, depending on which side of the debate we're on. If it were a state... Actually, the government undertaking that act and doing it to undermine another state's security or power, then we might say that's war. But usually, that's very, very muddy, and it's almost impossible to tell that. And this is what we see in this, these constant reports coming out about China's attacking us, and chi- we're under attack from China, and Chinese hackers are, are, are out to get us. But the fact is, even if those attacks are, tra- are, are, are traced back to China, which, which they sometimes are, who is acting in China, um, and what is their motivation? And just recently, this big report came out from Mandiant, a big security um, firm, who, who said they traced these attacks back to this building in which there's, there are some private sector firms, but they're also co-located with a, um, a unit from, from the um, Chinese government. And so they said that's sort of almost conclusive proof that these attacks coming out of China are linked to the government. But of course it's not, because even in, in, in the West, our private sector security firms are often co-located with the, the defense contractors that they're working for and, and with defense. So we know that space is very, very muddy and, and indistinct. Um, and the final point I'll just raise is that we don't have any kind of norms or international agreements about this. So where we have international agreements about all kinds of weapons, how you can use them and in what situations you can use them and when you can't use them, 
We don't have any agreements about this. And so that is all work that will have to be done. And I think, actually, we could go back to Clausewitz, to his, his uh, you know, very, um, you know, often referred to phrase about that, that war is politics carried on by other means. And I think that's a more meaningful and interesting way to look at war in this context. So I'll leave it there. Thank you. Yeah, uh, th- thank you. Um, well, I don't think I'll have a stunning conclusion that war is a marriage by other means, maybe. <laughs> um, but I'm taking more war studies and strategic studies um, perspective on um, the emergence of cyber warfare and information technologies. Um, what collectively has come under the term the Revolution in Military Affairs, or RMA, as I refer to it, or the um, discipline refers to it. Um, RMA emerged from the American military and academia um, to describe uh, the emerging uh, information technologies that was being used by uh, militaries and uh, the doctrinal shifts uh, they were trying to make to accompany it to make forces smaller, lighter, faster, more mobile and more lethal uh, as well um, and to have uh, essentially a faster mode of warfare and a less dangerous mode of warfare uh, for uh, American forces and it sort of expanded to more than just the United States military by today. Um, I'm just going to outline about three um, concepts of the more radical proponents of the RMA uh, profits um, have developed uh, in these 20 years and then how a lot of academia has sort of pushed back against these uh, radical elements and how I think policy hasn't quite caught on um, to this uh, argument against technophilia. Um, so the three general uh, concepts that I've sort of outlined, um, which are not necessarily down to Arkila Ronfeld, although they do come um, up in, in the article. Um, the first is panaceism, the second uh, an assumption of an inert enemy and a, a belief in certainty, and the third is um, throwing out the old in favour of everything that's new. So on the first one, which is panaceism, uh, what, I mean, what I mean by this is the belief that excellence in cyber warfare or information technology would guarantee success in conflict. And um, there are many uh, permutations of, of this, and I've picked up on two, uh, which are dominant battle space, no, battle space knowledge, or DBK, and strategic information warfare, or SIW. Now, DBK manifests itself on the tactical and operational levels of war, so managing battles and, and achieving military success through fighting um, in support of conventional uh, physical forces so not warfare in the cyber realm uh, as such but it can include it and dominant battle space knowledge as the name suggests uh, means that uh, you intend to know everything about your adversary and the battlefield so you can counter every move of your enemy you can predict every move he or she is going to make uh, and you can plot your response accordingly and overcome any advantage that the enemy has because you know everything, you are uh, uh, omniscient um, and if you know everything about your enemy you will uh, be forever successful that's a, a bastardization of uh, Sun Tzu's famous line about um, to, if you know everything you will win everything um, strategic information warfare as the name suggests is associated with a strategic level of warfare and has similarities with uh, strategic air campaigns in that you can bypass enemy forces 
um, and attack your enemy state's um, infrastructure and functioning so that systems collapse, energy grids go out, um, welfare systems cease to function and with the, with the intent of breaking the will and support of the people to force the government to sue for peace. So there's a lot of parallels there with strategic bombing. Um, the second concept was the assumption of an inert enemy and, and the belief in certainty. A lot of the more extreme writings in the RMA literature assumes that the enemy is just going to accept that you know everything or is going to try and, um, well, is not going to respond to you in any way. Um, in that an enemy would be helpless if you know everything about them. Uh, and that in itself assumes that you can know everything on the battlefield. That, in Clausewitzian terms, is a fallacy. There is always uncertainty. There are always going to be unknown unknowns, as, as Rumsfeld would put it. Uh, there are always going to be surprises. And um, it comes with a general American trend in social science to want to quantify everything as well. And um, to just transpose computer simulations that you can quantify everything and know everything and try and transpose it onto the real world. Uh, the third concept is the belief in that everything that's come before is now irrelevant in light of these new technologies um, and new modes of behaviour utilising these technologies. Um, and decentralisation of command is something that's, that's been thrown around a lot, at least in the stuff I've read. Um, but decentralisation of command has many precedents throughout history. It's not necessarily something new. Uh, you can look at the First World War to decentralise and command on the battlefield and the trenches, and both sides did it with varying measures of success. Um, and uh, Madeline touched upon it just now about um, hierarchy versus networks and modes of command. Um, it's, again, it's not necessarily an either-or argument. It's maybe more of one, more of the other, but there are many uh, precedents before the computer age and the internet age um, of decentralised uh, command. And this, this uh, belief in throwing out everything that's all kind of brings me on to these academics or many academics within strategic studies pushing back against the more technophile um, prophets of cyber war and the revolution in military affairs. And um, despite Arkila and Ronfeld starting with a quote from Clausewitz about knowledge, Clausewitz has often been a target of those who say the information revolution changes everything or the RMA has made Clausewitz irrelevant. Um, Clausewitz did not say much about intelligence and the role of information or technology for that matter, but that doesn't mean that his other concepts are not valid. Um, concepts such as uh, friction, uncertainty, um, and war as a political activity are still very applicable. And a lot of the um, attacks on Clausewitz uh, from uh, the RMA literature come from a misunderstanding of, some key, of, of the key concept in uh, Clausewitz's theory, which is uh, an unchanging nature of war as a political activity and a perpetually morphing character of war as the way you wage war, how you fight war, changes all the time between adversaries, between belligerents, geographies, cultures. Um, so you have the unchanging basis and a perpetually changing character, the chameleon of war that adapts itself to any given situation. And I find if only this distinction was made to a lot of people in the early 1990s, we might have avoided a lot of technophilia and strategic studies in the past 20 years, um, but such is hindsight. Um, 
And, and that's symptomatic then of the tacticization of strategy in that the belief in strategic success, overall success in a conflict, boils down to how well you do in the battlefield. And I'm, I'm sure most of us can think of examples where American military superiority has actually not done anything for them achieving their own political aims or the stated political aims at the start of a conflict. Um, so the tacticization of strategy means that you just transpose that winning battles means you're going to win the war. And the pushback with academics in, since the 2000s has been helped by the difficulties in Iraq and Afghanistan in that the Americans have unchallenged superiority in the battlefield, but we can say pretty confidently that America-NATO coalition has been more or less defeated in strategic terms, um, at least given the objectives they went in for in the first place. Um, and we've already spoken about Thomas Ridd, um, how he calls that the effects of cyber warfare um, are just uh, new means of achieving old effects, uh, which is what he calls espionage, subversion and sabotage, uh, which are along a spectrum between crime and war, and neither really being on either side if we call them these, uh, these things. So, you could potentially cripple an infrastructure uh, in the interwar period by blowing up um, very important rail lines in certain places simultaneously in the same way you could cripple an entire power grid uh, simultaneously with a very sophisticated virus infecting every system at the same time. Um, all it takes is worst case thinking and a lot of paranoia and you get the same effect just not necessarily the cyber means to do so. So um, I'm quite persuaded by Red's arguments um, that it's just the same effects but just new means to do so um, and as any good Clausewitz knows, the means of warfare are always changing. Um, so since about 2005 onwards, the, uh, the RMA proponents have tended to prescribe less on the strategic level of war and tend to focus more on how the character of war is changing and become less radical and just focus on what their chosen military needs to do to stay ahead of the game as far as high-intensity warfare goes. Um, so just to conclude, I don't think um, cyber capabilities are ever going to be isolated from the political context of a war. So I don't think you could ever have a, political, uh, a completely cyber conflict in that you could have uh, a strategic information warfare between two belligerents um, because the danger of escalation um, in the political relations between the two parties doing it. And I would disagree with Mandelin on the case of attribution because warfare is about implying your will on another. How can you try to impose your will if, you're any, if, you're enemy, if your target doesn't know whose will it's meant to appease? So, I mean, someone's taking out our infrastructure. What do we do to appease them? Well, we don't know who to appease first, so that's, that's, that's my problem with that. Uh, so I think the attribution uh, problem is... Um, as we say in Welsh, truly translated, making a mountain in the sea out of nothing. Um, so, but about policy though, um, I think US policy in South Asia is a worrying example of policy getting more technophilic um, in that counterinsurgency campaigns doing increasingly uh, through remote and standoff technology. So you have the Obama administration relying much, much more on um, drones to do, um, well, 
anti-Islamist uh, duties uh, in South Asia. So it's as if academia may have pushed back against the, the, the bad parts of technophilia uh, in the RMA, but policy hasn't quite caught on, at least uh, um, with American policy in South Asia and against um, extreme Islam. Um, and I think I'll leave it there. Thanks very much, Bledin. Um, thanks for initials for me. Usually, usually quite lost when it comes to RMA and DYK and all of that. Uh, if, if they can move on to Chris, that would be good. Yep, sure. sure. Yeah, that's fine. Um, listen, thanks very much for turning up um, to these voluntary events. It's really appreciated. It's a, a good crowd. Not as good as it was in the Millennium Stadium on Saturday, but still a good crowd. Nothing will match that. Oh, very, very few things. There's two proud Welshmen. Um, what I hope you'll do as well is think upon some of the issues we're discussing and produce some good questions for yourself. I see in the audience some of my students, some people on my side of warfare course, and the discussion and the questions that have been generated during that course have been a real eye-opener. For me, it's been a very helpful way to look at a range of issues. All I will ask initially is you think about what you constitute as cyber warfare. What do you mean by cyber warfare? You, yourselves. Not what we are telling you, not what we are discussing, not what's in the literature. What do you think cyber warfare is? Because I might argue, um, in fact I probably will argue, it should be perhaps broadened to include a slightly larger range of issues. One thing I will say is it's fast-paced and it's complex and it's multidimensional and multifaceted. And that in itself creates a series of problems and it doesn't help us in terms of problematizing an issue or series of issues. Whether we be policy makers, whether we be academics, people on the, in the security services or the intelligence agencies, how we link and make judgments upon all the range of issues, which, some of which I'll discuss, is a very difficult question for policymakers. And the range, as has been discussed earlier, from people like Leon Panetta, who talks about a cyber Pearl Harbor, to people like Thomas Freud, who say, it's not that bad. We've not had physical attack. We've not had massive breaches. It's never as bad as you think. But if you're a policymaker, you tend to go on the worst-case scenario. You kind of have to. Otherwise, you could be accused of falling down on the job. So maybe this is a, a, pr a process which is well-established of perhaps over-egging a threat. It's a point you can argue. The attribution problem, I think, is key. I think attribution is very, very difficult. China's been pointed to significantly, perhaps too significantly. We don't know if, just using China as an example, whether it's the states by their own volition, an actor within the state operating on their behalf, an enthusiastic hacker, or someone who's been co-opted by the states, unbeknownst to them, for some form of cyber attack on, for example, Lockheed Martin, Douglas, um, 
the NSA, wherever it might be. Attribution is a problem, and it makes it problematic for the security agencies and for the policy-making community to measure and build a response. I also think that we tend to be caught in a reactive cycle. Although we think proactively about issues of cyber warfare, cyber security, we can only base it on what has actually been and happened and what we know about. Because there may well be cases which have not made it into the, uh, onto the internet and into the media, which we're not able to discuss. We simply don't know. And I think this as well is, I think it's a problem in terms of our thinking. And that is a baseline for how we condition our responses. To broaden it out, what of, we've talked a little bit about warfare and drones, but what of the issues of robotics and the increased use of UAVs and manned aerial vehicles and, and when combat aerial vehicles, which has now been described as yet another in this alphabet soup of anagrams and RPA, remote piloted automatons or remote vehicles. They just don't like the term of unmanned being there because there is someone at the end of a controller or a computer screen. So they want to drop that title. There's others, such as Noel Sharkey, who I think is a very elegant writer on this subject, who say they perhaps should be better defined as killer robots. But the important thing about that is they rely on data links, networks, network-centric warfare. You're joining up all elements of the military, be it ground-based combat forces, air launch capabilities, um, big battle groups, individual vessels, and joining these all together. That depends on bandwidth, it depends on communications, who communicates what to whom and where and why and when. It's time critical also. This developed partly out of counterinsurgency operations in the year 2000, Afghanistan and Iraq. But it doesn't mean the next series of conflicts, <coughs> excuse me, because I've got flu as well will be the same type as those we've experienced in the past. Major operations tend to be unpredictable. We base our, our defence planning on what has gone before. How on earth do you judge defence planning on what has yet to happen? How? And yet, as a policymaker, you've kind of got to take that step, at least mentally, but that has issues in terms of procurement as well. Especially with the development <coughs> of long lead items. Things we put in place which take 10, 15, 20 years to actually make it through <coughs> the research phase into development. And then from prototypes to operational systems and the range of operational systems. 41% of America's flying core is now made up of UK, uh, UAVs and UCAVs and that is a trajectory that will continue. <coughs> they spend an awful lot of money developing programs like the <coughs> excuse me like the F-22 Raptor the F-35 which is 8, either eight million or 8 billion lights of code 
carrier groups. Um, in the European context, we've got the Eurofighter Typhoon. A lot of sunk costs in conventional systems, a number of which depended upon information technology and a range of cyber capabilities. The F-22, for example, is a, a range uh, across a spectrum of electromagnetic capabilities beyond conventional ordnance. So all these things arguably should be joined together. There are also major ethical implications of going more and more down the remote warfare route. Desensitization to human casualties, casualty aversion, which has been evident certainly in the US since the Vietnam War, if not before, and issues of dehumanization. You know, people far away from the battle space doing a point and click and killing combatants and non-combatants. That's a nice way of putting it. Children, um, people absolutely not involved. There were, this has happened, we know it's happened. The numbers you can argue about. But if this is a trajectory, I think we start need to start thinking about perhaps putting some sort of legal framework in place. It's something Noel Sharkey has absolutely argued for and done it very elegantly, as I've said before. There are also related issues in the field of nanotechnology and biotechnology. In the field of nanotechnology, you've got an issue of something called metamaterials. Non-index metamaterials. It's effectively an invisibility cloak. It's the stuff of Harry Potter. But it's not only coming, it's here. Now, whether that's a single sniper on a battlefield, whether it's a tank, an aircraft, it raises, again, a series of legal and ethical implications in terms of across the spectrum of modern warfare and how we species want to behave and act and react. In the field of biotech, there are things like comp computer brain interfaces, we are becoming, in some senses, or the potential is certainly there for us to become cybernetic organisms. This all sounds very terminatory or terminator-esque. But science fiction, I'm afraid to say, ladies and gentlemen, is becoming science reality. During the course, I've shown, and you can, people can bear me out in the audience, footage from Jurassic Park, The Terminator, probably Robocop, and a range of others. The stuff that I saw as a kid is coming to pass. And the rate and pace of which is coming to pass, we've not stopped to think. And I think we need to pause and think some issues through. We're running headlong into a whole new world. It's not the brave new world of the Tempest, or actually it is. <laughs> Who polices cybernetic and biotech research? There is so much done in private sector, some of which is financed by central governments, some of which is not. We've got issues of stem cell research. You know, we just don't know. And are we mature enough as a species to actually think through where this is all taking us and where this is all leading us?
Google has produced Google Glasses, which can relay instantaneous new information drawn from the internet and a range of other sources. Next step, if it's not here already, will be retinal implants. Step beyond that will be some sort of cognition process linked to your cerebral cortex. And issues of transhumanism. You know, some people actively embrace this, life extensions and the like. Where is this leading us as a species? Is it changing our, our nature? Are we going to embrace everything? Or are we going to try and compartmentalise things? That's not cyber warfare. That's not cyber security. That's something else. That's biotech. That's a completely separate area. Is it? And one of the issues is we're running headlong into this success. Maybe the pace of technology and technological innovation is running ahead of our, outstripping our capacity to think through these range of issues in a holistic way, rather than a clearly alienated and separate set of fields. Maybe we should start thinking about packaging up some of these issues together. But there are also traditional issues. I'm aware I'm probably running over time by that moment. Uh, two minutes honestly two minutes I promise you but there are a series of traditional issues as well built into what you might term hacking or cracking or cyber warfare in an information sense and there are read across from the cold war from the nuclear fields how do you deter these kind of attacks and these kind of actors if you don't, if you're not, as Blair was saying, saying earlier, if you're not able to attribute an attack to an actor, whether they be state or non-state or terrorist group, how on earth can you condition a response? If something starts at a relatively low level, but has the capacity to, to grow and to develop, there are risky issues of escalation. And how do governments and policymakers condition their responses to the potential? Not just the actual what's happened, but the potential for it to grow and develop. And draw a line in the sand. In some ways, we're trying to predict the unpredictable. If you're a good opponent, you will target not only your weakness, but you will think around the possible solution the opponent might provide. You think in different ways than two, three, four, five steps ahead. It's been put to me that China was thinking about the issues that America is thinking about now 20 years ago. So they're well ahead of the game at this point. That's been an argument that's put forward. We are still reactive and not proactive. Despite a wealth of resources being poured into cybersecurity, and thinking through issues of vulnerability, not only in terms of the die-hard force scenario and critical infrastructure, but about lower-level threats, including DDoS attacks, which are very, very common. And I will end with just two brief points. One is, and again, this is a possibility rather than anything else, and it's a potential vulnerability of conventional forces, which are still the mainstay of defence budgets and hard power calculations in the 21st century. Their vulnerability to potential cyber attack. Thinking in terms as well of network-centric warfare and how all these things are joined up. 
because it's very useful to share intelligence, it's very useful to share uh, battle space awareness or have knowledge of how your troops are reacting on the ground. And this, that's happened. And the last point is, it may not necessarily be the case that you have to go for wholesale or part destruction. Disruption may be enough. Power grids, hospitals, if you can set panic in a population, even in a localised area, that might be enough for the effect you're trying to achieve. We've seen it with 9-11. You saw it with a power grid failing on the eastern seaboard in the years after 9-11. In situations people don't know anything about, and you can't see your attacker, that is as frightening as anything else. Thanks. Thanks very much. First, sir, should I say Dr. Doom? Thanks. Where's the uh, sound? This, uh, um, I'm not entirely sure, but I tested YouTube earlier and it sounded fine. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, I doubt anyone's. So. Okay. I, I'm going to start off with the clip, and then I'll get get through to the uh, to the. Uh, to the uh. This is a clip from a popular video game. Okay, uh, as I said before, that was a, uh, that's a clip from uh, a promotional trailer for an extremely popular uh, video game, one of, the, one of the leading games right now out on the market. Um, today, essentially what I want to talk to you about is the relationship between uh, video games and militarism. Essentially, uh, uh, I'm very interested in three spheres of influence, play space, game space, and battle space. And I think what's interesting about that trailer, besides the idea that it shows the growing universal appeal of shooter games and its incredibly immersive qualities, is that like most aspects of screen, actual screen-mediated warfare, the shooter attempts to make war virtuous by intentionally removing the true horrors, human suffering, and destructive consequences that war exacts on humans and societies. Now, um, humans essentially are uh, 
I think uh, humans essentially are uh, uh, characterized as a species that uh, have a very, um, in terms of most animals on Earth, they can be characterized or distinguished by their capacity to kill in large numbers uh, members of their own kind and their ability to create symbolic representations of reality. And I think these two characteristics are quite related because it's the symbols that define for us the reality in which killing others is often deemed necessary. Um, uh, throughout history, representations of war have taken various modes, textual, songs, films, and now with video games. And video games, although they have aesthetic and uh, narrative qualities, they are defined as a new medium by virtue of the processes. Video games tell us how systems work, how things work in our, in our, in our society. And so they are, in fact, models of reality in some specific way, much like a... Um, uh, flight simulator. Games that are not shooters like Darfur are, is Dying is a very interesting video game because what it does is it shows you the processes of being, it puts you in the position of being a refugee in Darfur and the problems associated with attempting to survive. Meaning in the game you first, uh, you select your avatar which can be one of many different types of refugees and, you're, and part of the game is to search for water. And uh, in the process of searching for water, you have to try to evade militia. If you get caught by militia, then the game reboots and you have to start again. Once you actually, or if you are successful of getting water, then the, the video game switches to a sort of a, th uh, a three, uh, uh, third dimension or kind of an omnipresent uh, viewpoint where you are in charge of sort of maintaining and run, running a uh, refugee camp. And there you have to ration water for not only building huts, but for supplying uh, you know, water for uh, people who live there. Now, the interesting thing about video games is that, as Bob Rehack says, interfaces are themselves ideological. They work to remove themselves from awareness seeking transparency or at least unobtrusiveness for uh, they channel agency into new forms. And I, I think with video games, what you see throughout their history, and video games go on for a very long time, that in actuality, video games show us the actual processes, both social and political, of our day. And if we trace video games back, from some of the most recent titles to their, begin, their very beginning, what we can see is that they follow in tandem not only the fears and phobias that are created by conflict in the world, but ways in which a society tries through processes to resolve these conflicts. So as we see here, we see from 2012, we see a game called um, Splinter Cell, which really is a game about, deals with the post-ambiguity of terrorism, torture, and conspiracy. Or if we go back to 2002, we find a game called Desert Storm, which was essentially uh, uh, a re-simulation of the patriotic battles of America's first uh, successful high-tech battles in Iraq. 
If we go back even further to 1987, we have the game Rambo, which was in many ways, like the film, uh, you know, uh, very much the, the story and the procedures of the aggressive get tough foreign policy and hard body politics of Reaganism, as in Rambo. And then if we go back a little bit further, we come to, in 1982, we have a game that was called Communist Mutants from Space, which is all about the ideological invasion of vodka-drinking aliens. Um, although, really, the game is just a, a fancy version of Space Invaders. And then if we go back just even a little bit further, there's a game that I'm sure many of you remember, which was called Missile Command. And Missile Command came out in 1980. And in many ways, uh, Missile Command directly relates to the anxiety over the stalled ICBM treaties and the threat of nuclear escalation in the late 70s. Now, uh, if we go back to the very first video game, uh, which was over 60 years ago, we come to a game called Space Wars. And Space Wars came out in 1962, sometime just after Sputnik, and in many ways, Space Wars itself was inspired by the space race, which for many of us is synonymous for the arms race. So uh, it's not so much of a stretch to say that Space War was a computational metaphor for the deep-rooted cultural, ideological, and technical rivalry that was going on between the two superpowers during the Cold War. Now, Space War, you know, uh, is very interesting because... Uh, its rocket ships, which were the first known avatars, were, had a distinct similarity between uh, the spindle, which is the one on the left, has a distinct similarity to the Redstone rocket, which was America's first medium-range nuclear missile that was deployed throughout uh, Europe. And the wedge on your uh, left uh, has, a, has a, a great similarity to the Russian RDS-7 or the Russian Semyorka, which was the first intercontinental ballistic missile. Now, um, I think in many ways space war was the perfect allegory of the Cold War, a war that was never really kinetic, but instead would be played out in the abstraction of a screen-mediated computer game. But also it was the presage of the coming of virtualized political violence, the, uh, the usage of screen-mediated technologies uh, in warfare. But not only that, Space Wars was also the presage of the coming synergy between battle space and play space, the Pentagon and Hollywood, Xbox Warriors and Cyborg Soldiers. Now, I'm jumping ahead a little bit. Uh, okay, sorry, it's all gone black. Okay. Um, it's interesting to know that before the first Gulf War, there were not so many first-person shooters uh, that deal, dealt with real conflict or based upon actual history. Most shooters before 1990 dealt with uh, battlefields that were based on science fiction. Usually the main character was a hero soldier scientist caught in a military industrial complex, battling his way uh, against uh, uh, mutant, uh, mutant monsters, uh, feisty, uh, feisty robots, and um, the battlefields were out in space. Uh, partly this was due to the fact that 
before 1989, the computer industry, especially for the first-person shooter, was a, was a rather new industry. And um, also, in many ways, there were not very many legitimate conflicts to base war upon. Um, after the after in the in the in the 1990s, what you saw were you saw shooter games starting to embrace the war on terror with the uh, bombing of the Cobart Towers, the uh, bombing of the embassies in Africa and the first attack on the World Trade Center. What you see are video games starting to uh, uh, appropriate the narrative of the war on terror. In many ways, these games are interesting because they gave procedural definition to concepts that were very abstract for publics. Things like asymmetrical war, anticipatory self-defense. And uh, so many ways, uh, the, these shooter games in the early 90s put a definitive face on the abstract and somewhat nebulous war on terror. Um, now, today, video games are essentially, you know, one of the number one uh, cult entertainment mediums around. And uh, today, shooter games comprise roughly about 30% of the revenues from the total video game industry, an industry that I might add is rivals today the combined net uh, proceeds of film and the global, tele global film and television industry. So in itself, it is a very uh, powerful entertainment medium. Uh, most of these games are very interesting because the narrative of these games uh, uh, are follow a, a very similar form, which one in which the usage of black ops and discrete warfare becomes a necessary but great solution. In all these games, the narrative implies that perpetual war adds stability, safety, and prosperity to, uh, to society. Now, the interesting things about these games are uh, the way in which they combine reality and uh, virtual recreation. And I'll just show you a, uh, an example of a game that sort of mixes uh, uh, real live conflict with video game play. It's a free game. It's called Kuma War. Uh, it's essentially a game that is more popular in the Middle East than it is in North America.
Okay, that 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 was from a, one of the early installments. I think the latest one they did was on uh, on the the capture of uh, Osama bin Laden in Operation Geronimo. Kuma is uh, has been in the news lately. Uh, specifically, uh, two years ago, uh, one of their game designers was imprisoned while in visit, visiting relatives in Iran, and the Iranian Revolutionary Council said he was actually Kuma was a conduit of the CIA fomenting uh, uh, unrest amongst youngsters uh, by um, uh, producing video games that were, you know, anti-establishment. So. Uh, uh, Amir Hekmati uh, was sentenced to death last year. The court overruled, but he's still in prison. So he potentially has the capacity to be the first uh, casualty of a virtual war game. Uh, also, um, the U.S. military takes uh, video games quite seriously. Uh, I'm, I'm going to sort of cut this off. Uh, there's lots more, but I better stop. Um, besides the fact that they sponsored a game in 2002 called America's Army, which was a, a very popular success, um, uh, the U.S. military actually uh, uh, spends a lot of time consulting for uh, video game companies today. Uh, most notably, uh, if you look at the la latest edition of Black, Black Ops, which you see is uh, one of their flagship uh, spokesmen is Oliver North. And, you know, I find this particularly disturbing since Oliver North, uh, as you all recall, was one of the lead uh, rogues during the Iran-Contra scandal. And so, you know, in many ways, this is a reflection of the public, you know, the shift in pub public consciousness, uh, you know, uh, death squads and, uh, and the, what went on in Iran during that period of time incited a lot of uh, uh, public anger. But today... Um, you know, what we see happening is we see video games sort of mimicking and becoming an integral part of the way in which an emerging, emerging constitutional order seeks its legitimacy in response to transformations of the battlefield, uh, mainly the, the rise in asymmetrical warfare. And uh, in many ways, these games try to promote uh, the authenticity of the simulation to the le legitimacy of political intention. Games like Kuma War, America's Army, Call of Duty, Medal of Honor, what they do is they presuppose the reality of the war game is the same that really takes place in the actual world. By playing the game, gamers are enticed to experience a sort of interactive CNN uh, type of worldview, a way in which to understand world events and conflict. So, you know, by, re by weaving this notion of real people and military consultants with real events, you know, uh, and this notion of real objective journalism, what we have is uh, sort of the creation of uh, a form of uh, legitimacy or authenticity. And I think today, going into the second decade of the war on terror, one of the biggest problems that faces uh, policymakers and war planners today is this continuity and familiarity of a war on terror, but the lack of actual images and information that actually uh, sus to sustain its legitimacy. And if we look at uh, what's going on today with embedded news reporting, secret kill lists, covert drone operations, we're very much out of the loop. And so, in many ways, by promoting uh, video games as hyper-real and authentic and using military consultants as experts, what 
what is happening is, is that video games as part of the military-industrial complex slash in military-industrial media complex are what they're doing is they're trying to fill the legitimacy gap by presupposing that what goes on in these games are a real thing. And uh, I better stop there. If anybody's interested in more tomorrow, I'll be here. Thank you. Thank you. Um,